hopefully with a single drug or maybe two drugs together in the right patients. And we try to pre-identify all that and we try to learn from you know, cell experiments and, and mice experiments, how do we know the right patient group and the right disease setting, and then try to put all these pieces together. You know, we're really hopeful that we'll start to see results. 100% everybody going into remission is almost untenable. It's almost unimaginable as a scientist knowing what we know. But if we can get close to that, I think we'd be really happy. And not just in 2% of a particular tumor type. Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. My name is Dr. Sanjay Janeja. I'm a hematologist, medical oncologist. Love talking about education and everything cancer and not only what's happening today, but really where we're headed and also known as the Onk Doc on social media. I'm super excited because I have a friend today that is also super sciencey and geeky like I am and just really blew my mind. And y'all know that I think I know a lot of the things that are, you know, from this podcast and everything else that are ahead. Dr. Ian Walters is doing amazing things. He's got his own company, Portage, where he just wants to find and assemble basically the things that really move the needle forward in an innovative way. I just can't wait for everyone's mind to be blown like mine was. So we're going to talk about gut stuff and gut specifically when it comes to like immunity. And we all know immunity has to do with cancer and like regulating it and but also in its treatments. But how does that axis play together? And secondly, are the things other than immune therapy, that traditional checkpoint inhibitor, uh, you know, stuff that we've talked about with Dr. Flaherty and everyone else, how can we further hack that immunity, if that's the right term, to be able to assist with the other agents that we use in cancer? I think you're gonna find it very interesting. Uh, I certainly learned a lot and it was actually a social trip. So Dr. Ian Walters, I'm super excited to have you here. Hey, Sanjay, it's good to, to be here. Hopefully I can give some of the listeners some ideas and, and insight to what we're working on, how we're trying to move the needle forward, try to help more patients get into what we call long-term response, which is usually not achievable with conventional treatments for cancer because they pretty much stop working when you stop taking them, whereas immune therapies right. offer the hope of a long-term benefit off of therapy, which is you know the goal for everybody. So, I mean, now you kind of do this to yourself. Tell me how that's possible. So we know with immune therapy, even with checkpoint inhibitors, we have to still give it every three, four, six weeks. We do know that we don't know when it stops working exactly because, you know, we've learned over time that we're still seeing sometimes the, I don't want to say side effects, but the immune system just starting to attack something on, a, you know, in a different place that's usually reversible with steroids because steroids, you know, are lymphoreductive and it's the lymphocytes that you're kind of uh, liberating to be able to attack different parts of the body. But we know it hangs around for a few months and there's this thing, and I think that maybe what you're suggesting, I know that's what he's suggesting, it's called the abscopal effect. So by means of context, you know, my previous role, I was at Bristol-Myers Squibb. And for those of you who know, Bristol-Myers really developed the first and second um, immune-based therapies. And in particular, you know, the first one, which was a subject of the Nobel Prize, was CTLA-4 antibody. And what was interesting and what we learned by that, and it was really remarkable because we had never seen this before, and I've been doing this for a long time. You know, we gave patients four doses of this antibody, okay, and stopped. And a certain proportion of patients with that antibody alone went into response. And it was remarkable because it was not patients that were early on in their treatment course. These were patients who had failed just about all available treatments. These are melanoma patients. And they were basically told they had, you know, two to three months to live. And these patients, after a couple doses, went into complete response. 
And what we saw over the years was those patients that were in response in about one, at the end of two years, were in response at 10 years, right? So there was no relapse in that, in that patient population. And, you know, I remember the excitement around this because, um, you know, in cancer, we, we were very hesitant to say that we cured anybody, you know. And um, I remember when we presented that data at a conference, people had T-shirts made up, said uh, the C word. Yes, we said it. And we're not talking about the C word cancer. We're saying cure because these patients are now 10 years out off of treatment and their cancer hadn't come back. And that really is what got people, the researchers, clinicians, really excited about, well, all right, if we can do that in 10% or 20% of patients, how do we get the other 80% there? So tell me when you said that CTLA-4, like the antibody, we've talked about antibodies before, how you, you know, sometimes they're target antibodies to like, for example, CD20 and B-cell lymphomas, but then there's antibody drug conjugates where basically it brings a chemo with it finds the anchor as the antibody and then injects the chemo. But you're not even talking about any of that, those kind of mechanisms uh, at all. How exactly does that CTLA-4 work and why is it different? So CTLA-4 is an immune checkpoint, but what, what it does is it helps educate the immune cells how to recognize the tumor, right? So it's called immune priming and then it, and then it promotes proliferation of these T cells. And the idea is you and I don't have cancer today because even though we've been outside and we got radiation and we breathe in pollutants and we probably ate carcinogens today and we got some cancer cells in our body, our immune system found it and got rid of it. And that's what happens in the normal process. Now, a cancer can adapt and figure out ways to evade that immune system attack and then all of a sudden starts to take hold and start growing. I know you've talked about that in other podcasts. And the idea is, well, how can we get that immune system going again? How can we get them, those cells to recognize and to develop a memory, right? And that's kind of one of the key things. You need that memory. We have memory towards polio and the other things we were vaccinated against that protects us for the majority of our life. We want to have memory to the specific cancer cells so that we're protected. And that's what we believe is going on with CTLA-4 treatment, is you're getting patients to develop immunologic memory. And I don't know how technical you want to get, because like there's really cool science around this. We actually looked at, and people have looked at collaborators I've worked with in the past, they have a way of looking at all your T cells. So you have clonal populations of T cells against hepatitis, if you've been vaccinated against hepatitis, you have them against other kind of things that you're vaccinated or been exposed to. And these T cell clones have this long duration, they stay in your body. And if your body ever sees that intruder or that virus or that abnormal cell, it can clear them. And they looked at these clones of T cells before and after treatment with CTLA-4. So what they saw before you got treatment is you have some clones of cells against your cancer. But those cells aren't enough to clear it. You've lost the battle. There's a, you know, a seesaw or, you know, like this balance of your good T cells and the cancer cells, and you're losing that balance because you have metastatic disease and those cancer cells are proliferating. So this balance is, is not quite winning in your favor. The cancer is winning. And what they saw after you get that CTLA-4 antibody, particularly in the ones that responded and their cancer went away, is then those cells that you had before treatment, they didn't change. 
Okay? The cells that you had against viruses and other things didn't change. But all of a sudden, you got this new clonal population of what we call neoantigen T cells, right? So they're new T cells that recognize unique aspects of your cancer. And those are the cells that were boosted with the CTLA-4 treatment, and again, that are associated with those patients having long-term benefit and potential cure of their disease. So you'll, if you look around at our space, there's a lot of people that say, well, how do we get these neoantigen T cells, right? And there's a whole companies that are designed at creating neoantigen T cells outside the body and giving them back, creating vaccines against neoantigens, all these other approaches to say, you know, if that worked with CTLA-4, can we, can we do that separately uh, in the lab and, and, and try to get more patients in response? Unfortunately, that's not the only thing that was needed to get these patients in response. And some of the trials of neoantigen vaccines have not really yielded value. So there's really more complexity to the immune system that we, some of which we, we are beginning to understand and a lot that we don't understand. And as you can imagine, the immune system has evolved over a very long period of time to kind of protect your body. And when the immune system goes haywire, it could kill you. So there's a fine line between, you know, helping promote that immune system to fight cancer versus stimulate it too much and create an attack against your normal tissues. And that's one of the key side effects of a lot of these things. With CTLA-4, it was a very important side effect, and it was lethal in the beginning until we figured out how to modulate it. And you talked a little bit about steroids, right? So if you do stimulate the immune system too much, you can have an attack against your normal tissue. And that could be really uncomfortable depending on where it is. If it's in your liver, it's hepatitis. If it's in your brain, it's encephalitis. If it's in other tissues, lung, pneumonitis, and so on. Um, we did learn over time that you can treat that by trying to dial the immune system back down with steroids. And one of the focuses of me and others uh, with our companies is maybe we can find a better way to stimulate the, assist, the immune system where we don't stimulate an attack against normal tissue. And then with that, can we dial it up more and get a better anti-cancer response or not? So uh, there's a lot to talk about about the immune system to really, really understand that. But one area is Again, figuring out a more specific way to dial it up just against the cancer um, and avoid the toxicities and the things that um, limit some of these other treatments. No doubt. And it's interesting what you said about the delicacy. There's so many things where you always say, like, you need to, we just need to take a moment and, like, you know, pat our immune system or thank our immune system, you know, for what it's doing with beating the cancer cells. Another one is really that destruction, that fine priming of these lymphocytes to say, whoa, you're a little too hungry. You're like the Raphael of the Ninja Turtles, right? Ralph is like too, like, he gets them in trouble because he's so hype and eager to go attack things. I'm sure people are like, dude, really a Ninja Turtles reference. <laughs> I haven't so heard, I haven't heard that analogy and you, yet. You know I get your point. I mean, it is the analogy I like to use, and this is a, a really easy one for people to kind of comprehend, is, you know, the immune system is like the finest race car, right? And if you want to win a race with that race car, you better be sure that you have three components, right? You need an expert driver and you need to know someone that knows where, when the turns are coming up, when to slow down, when to speed up and where to go. And, you know, this... Right. idea of neoantigens and recognizing cancer and, and, and knowing it's not a healthy cell and it's an abnormal cell, that's the driver, 
right? That's the giving the immune system the tools to figure out, okay, this is a bad cell. I know that and I need to know I need to get rid of that. And that unfortunately doesn't exist in most, most uh, patients with cancer. And it's proving to be a lot more challenging than people thought to figure out how to train the immune system to do that, how to drive. One example of that is outside of even um, cancers is how, you know, the concept of, I remember I thought it was so fascinating in medical school, is a super antigen, or basically this phenomenon that happens when if you get a viral illness or even some bacterial illnesses, what can happen is they can have, they can express something, a piece, a clue that almost, whether intentionally or not, once you've been subjected to it, it has lowered the threshold now for your immune system that before would have just like it said, oh no, let it pass, it's probably one of us. Now it's become more aggressive. Basically, they're all becoming like Raphael's towards a certain something. And it was because of that specific protein or antigen in that virus or that bacteria that now has made your body all of a sudden precipitate an autoimmune disease. That's what, I mean, to some people, that is a big theory on really why this random autoimmune disease comes out in, in humans. It's really, it's just saying you got exposed to something that just lowered your threshold to now all of a sudden, you know, recognize something or something that mimics something normal, right? So a lot of these, um, right, you know, I mean, exactly. It looks very similar. Things that you're exposed to, whether it's fungus, parasites, bacteria, viruses, right? Um, they have certain components of their genetic code that mimic things in human cells and we you know we know in certain things h pylori and things you know we we've been able to identify what those are we can try to treat the the infectious agent and and cure whatever the human disease is with it in many cases we don't know the connection human papillomavirus you know associated with a bunch of different cancers right How, why is that you know it transforms these cells they replicate unchecked again they evade the immune system and they turn into tumors. And again, we have tools right. now, vaccines where we vaccinate our kids. Hopefully they never have to deal with that, right? Because we're going to clear those cells before they become a problem. You know, so that's a, that's a cool way. But, it, you know, we have to talk a little bit about cancer vaccines, right? I mean, there's so many yeah. different vaccines yes. being tested out there. And, you know, the goal again is to train that driver, train these cells uh, the immune system to identify what's a bad cell and how to do that. And you know what, you know, even in some of the animal models, they look promising. They've gotten to the clinic. They've been a huge disappointment. That's because, again, cancer sits in the tissue, right? And, and oftentimes when we study in animals, it doesn't sit in the tissue. It just sits on the surface of the skin and it's not right. the same. But cancer develops over a long period of time in an organ and then puts up its defenses and creates its protection. And that's the tumor microenvironment. Right. And those mi that microenvironment is, you know, specifically designed to prevent these immune cells from coming in. And, you know, you can see when you give a vaccine, you train a bunch of the immune cells, you train these assassins to go out and find the cancer, but they can't get in. They're stuck outside. It's, it's interesting. Right. In biopsies, we see all these cells lined up around the tumor, they can't get in. They're all trying to do their job, they can't get in. And, and now a big focus of these immune therapies and some of the things that we're doing is how do you take down those barriers? How do you get rid of that so the cells can get in and do what they need to do? So one of the things that, that, that down-regulates the, the immune cells, and, and you've talked about this, is the PD-1 checkpoint, right? Uh, it's another kind of break signal Right. And to use the car analogy, we have a driver and now we have some guy who's got his foot jammed on the brakes, right? 
So the, these T cells can't, they can't get moving because the brake is on, right? It's really interesting. And that was the second checkpoint that we worked on when I was at BMS. And it's really become transformational for the way we treat cancer, right? It's approved in 14 different tumor types. You know, they're predicted that somewhere close to 80% of all cancer patients in the developed world will get a PD-1 type of therapy at some point in their treatment course, right? I mean, it's foundational oh, yeah. the way we think about managing patients. Well, when we did our first study in melanoma at, at Bristol-Myers, 30% of the patients responded. Better than nothing. And, and those responses were pretty durable, but we didn't cure everybody. What happened there? In some of those cases, right, the defenses were up and those cells that we're trying to unleash can't get into the tumor. Some cases, they're missing the good driver and there's the immune system can't tell. So it's really interesting. And there's this recent publication that I want to highlight that was super cool and it really um, illustrates the power of this approach. So why does a PD-1 therapy work in lung cancer and melanoma? It's pretty clear. If you look at those tumor types, there's a heavy uh, component of environmental exposure. You're exposed to radiation in the environment that causes mutations oh. in your skin cells. And you know what? Uh, a melanoma to the immune system looks very different than a healthy skin cell. It has tons and tons of mutations from all this environmental exposure. Same thing with lung cancer, all the things that we breathe in on a day-to-day -day basis, the highest mutations. And um, when we looked at, okay, what's different between the 30% the, the that responded and the 70% that didn't respond to the drug, we saw that the ones that respond tend to have a ton and ton of mutations. So it's very easy for that immune system right. to recognize that cell and not go and attack all your normal skin. Because, you know, if you did that, you'd be pretty miserable. And we know what things like psoriasis and other autoimmune disease where the immune system oh, yeah. is attacking the skin. And same thing in lung. We, we saw that. And it was very, very interesting. We did a study in colorectal cancer. And in colorectal cancer, we tested the PD-1 in 50 patients and one responded. So we got kind of disappointed. And historically, you know, colorectal cancer doesn't have the same amount of mutations. But there is a situation in that one patient. They have a genetic condition where they can't easily clear or repair mutations. It's called microsatellite instability. And that patient accumulated tons of mutations, just like the skin cancer patient. So it was interesting. It prompted because people. they couldn't repair them, and so therefore. So they build up, and now you right, have it was a like neglected of abnormal cells that's recognizable by the immune system. So just taking your foot off the brake, there's already T cells there. There's already the driver that knows that's a bad cell. All you have to do is take your foot off the brake, and then you can you can drive that car. So Merck went out and they, I think we're one of the first ones in this area and they said, all right, well, let's look across all the different tumors. And for the first time they were able to get approval for a drug, not for a tumor type, right? So it's not just colorectal, right? It's for any tumor type that has this genetic abnormality, microsatellite instability, where you can target these high mutations, regardless of where the tumor is located or where it originated. So when you look at that, they got about 40% of patients, again, with that MSI microsatellite abnormality to respond. Not all of them did the tumor go away, but they got responses even in patients who had failed everything. 
What was so cool, and this is really a small study, it was published in the New England Journal in June, a group of docs said, all right, well, instead of going in patients who have failed everything and have gotten chemo, which sort of damages the, the immune system and all this other stuff, what if we go in patients who have this microsatellite instability, again, in rectal cancer, so a, a, a subset of, of colorectal cancer, when they have a solitary tumor before we usually do surgery and then after surgery give them chemo and radiation. And we'll give them six months of this PD-1 antibody and um, we'll see what happens. And if the PD-1 antibody doesn't clear the tumor, then we'll give them the chemo, the surgery, and the radiation. And you as a practicing oncologist know if you do chemo, radiation, the surgery on the rectum, you know, those patients' quality of life is pretty bad. They have sexual dysfunction, you know, bowel right. dysfunction, you know, pain, uh, just really, really bad. And the first 12 patients, you know what? Every single one of them, the tumor went away entirely, and they were able to avoid surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. 100% of patients had a complete remission. Really unusual. The day the study came out, I, I got about... 50 to 100 direct messages, like a slide in the DMs kind of phrase, all about what is this miracle drug and like, you know, is it a qualify for X, Y, and Z? But you made two very good points, the Distalimab, right? That's, you know, it caused a lot of buzz. But, but the key that you highlighted that I'm glad is these were people with completely untreated. We've used, and I have to explain how it's, you know, in rectal, it's only about 2% of rectal cancers that have MSI uh, or be what's called, you know, MMR deficient. So like their, their mismatch repair proteins are deficient. They can't repair them and therefore you get this really dirty. The example I use is if you walk by someone, a couch where somebody keeps the house really clean and dusts everything and you walk by fast and this big dust ball all of a sudden comes out from under the couch and you're so embarrassed and you're like, you know, this thing is dirty. I swear I dust all the time. And it's like, it's not that you weren't dusting, but it grew big because you just could never see it. Well, all of a sudden, you know, when you introduce this PD-1 or pd one kind of interface, that is the equivalent of making that dust ball come out of the couch and clean it. And therefore, with an intact immune system, without the chemo, without all the other stuff you've done, it wasn't surprising that we saw that, but it was definitely even above what we could have imagined because we just don't look at it until people have been treated or are widely, you know, stage four. Well, I think the general mantra amongst our immunologists is that the earlier you can introduce these immune-based therapies, the better off they are. I think the, the moral of that story, though, is, agreed, is patient agreed. selection. And that's really what we're all trying to do in all the work that we do is match the right patient to the right drug. So in that particular setting, that was the right patient for that drug. And that's really the hope exactly. that we're going to find that's the way, the way to those settings for other tumor types and other settings and, and not just the 2% of the patient population. But clearly, using the car analogy again, those all those patients had or a pre-existing immune response, right? Because we talked about that, you know, they, the immune system recognized all the mutations that they have accumulated. Maybe that early on, they hadn't developed all the defenses in the tissue to prevent the immune cells from coming in. And again, you're essentially, you got your expert driver, you got your foot floored on the gas, and you finally just take off the, the brake and boom, you get, you get to the finish line really fast. So that's you know, what we're trying to do for more patients and figure out more ways, because we talk about it like it's kind of simple, right? It's so easy, oh, foot, brake, steering, you know, it's not that simple. 
is probably the most sophisticated race right. car with 50 different controls that need to be all in the right position in order to get that, that type of response. And that's what we do as scientists. We go and we look to match the right situation with the right drug. And, and what we do at Portage, and um, I have to mention my company because I'm really excited about what we do, is look for drugs and, and pathways where with just one drug, we can impact 10 or 15 of those controls because we know it's a complex wow. situation and we're not gonna be able to keep adding, well, we have a specific drug that does one control and we're gonna add that to another drug that does another control and we're gonna add it to something else. And then before you know it, you need 15 different drugs and they have all different interactions and toxicity overlaps and things like that. So we look for specific targets that can impact multiple things and they can play multiple roles. So hopefully with a single drug or maybe two drugs together, again, in the right patients, and we try to pre-identify all that and try to learn from you know, cell experiments and, and mice experiments, how do we know the right patient group and the right disease setting, and then try to put all these pieces together. And you know, we're doing that. And you know, we're really hopeful that we'll start to see you know, results 100% everybody going into remission is almost untenable. It's almost unimaginable as a scientist knowing what we know. But if we can get close to that, I think we'd be really happy and not just in 2% of a particular tumor type. And that's the hope, right? We're, we're trying to right. match so the right drug, yeah. the right patient and find the, the, the patient groups where it's you know 60% of the patients or 80% of the patients that, that could benefit from a particular treatment. And that's that's the kind of the concept of you know with precision therapy. We're not just talking about you know precisely the target. That's targeted therapy. But precision is like really is what the term also is tissue agnostic, where it's so not so much about what is the histopath on a slide say about you know what the tissue is. It's more like, dude, we want to study way more than that. We want to study like is it someone that's going to have a high tumor mutational burden? Is it somebody that's going to you know have have these mechanisms like pancreatic where we know that they insulate themselves with a bunch of you know the cells that your body uses all the time it's like if somebody that goes deer hunting you can just have camouflage that's good you can have camouflage over your head that's even better you can have camouflage and just go ahead and tape a bunch of branches and leaves all over your body and then you're really camouflage that's the challenge of like a microenvironment is, is how much can it protect itself and what you're talking about is finding ways that aren't like again like oh this is the one target and this one tumor and this and that but really where it doesn't so much matter what the tumor is like as a whole but rather what are the constituents or what is the kind of perfect climate and, and, and storm of what both enables that tumor, but if we can locate that and find out you know, that that is the thing that's the enabler and then hit that Achilles heel, we could also really effectively make it go away. And that, you know, what's the name for that kind of, kind of you know, oh. thought process? And what are, at the end of the day, some of the things you're doing for the, to make that happen? So, you know, we do a lot of work with the National Cancer Institute, which is the vision of the NIH. And you know there are certain researchers at the NIH and that focus on you know a drug for a single patient and how do you do that right and it's customizing everything right. for a patient right so what they try to do is like all right give me a piece of your tumor oh give me some samples of your blood cells and I'm gonna go in the lab and I'm gonna say all right I know how to stimulate the cells I know how to educate them on what your tumor is. And I got to analyze the tumor to know what part of the tumor is unique, right? Because cells are cells, right? So, you know, if a cell, if your cancer is derived from your skin cell, it's going to have a lot of components of normal skin cells. 
And what really is the part of that cell that I can isolate and say is specific to your tumor and it's not going to cause a reaction to healthy tissue? And, you know, what's unique about the work that they do at the National Cancer Institute is turns out like everybody's different, right? So like you could do 100 people and you're not going right. to find an overlap, right? And everyone needs a specific and some people, you know what, they can't find anything unique about it, right? And they can't even try this approach on them. And it, it really sets the stage yeah, regardless how of what complex the tumor is. this is, right? It's, so I know you've talked about like CAR T cells and now they're doing CAR NK cells and CAR gamma delta T cells and CAR INK T cells and right. And these are all again, approaches to say, look, we wanna create those professional assassins in the lab. We can make billions of them, yeah. right? And then give them back to you. And they've seen some really good successes. I'm not gonna minimize this. They've seen mostly in, in blood-borne tumors, so tumors that are circulating in the blood, that don't sit in the organs and the tissue, that don't have the same camouflage and protective mechanisms, that they can see 70, 80, 90, 90 plus percent response rates in those. The challenge with that is those assassins are sort of like at the end of their life center, right? They got a limited life that they can go stick around and, and fight cancer. And if they don't kill every single one, eventually those cells are gonna regrow and they're gonna, that cancer's gonna come back. Right. But we've seen some of these phenomenal tumor goes away quickly. Patients feel great, but six months, nine months, a year later, they, the cancer comes back. Because in order to have that long-term benefit that we talked about before, like with CTLA-4 and stuff, you gotta get that memory, right? And that process to get memory cells that are specific against your tumor is a complex one, right? We gotta educate them. You gotta you know, stimulate a helper response. You gotta get a memory response. It's this whole adaptive component of your immune system that you get when you are um, immunized and you train the immune system to develop this long-term memory. And unfortunately, these CAR T-cell approaches really don't always do that. It's a phrase of basically saying like, ah, oh, there's like nothing like the real thing or the original. Like, it's like at the end of the day, it's that, you know, it's the original that that, that is like you're trying to basically mirror it. But there's just nothing like the original. And it sounds like and I, and I, and I just want to press you. It sounds like you're building to tell me how we can make it prolonged yes. or sustained get because, you know, you've identified the problem on what happens with like the, the getting really excited, but then it went waning off. So, you know, I'll give you an example. One of our drugs, like I said, hits all these different pathways. So it's able to stimulate direct killing of the tumor. And when you kill the tumor again, then you get those antigens. So you can start getting the immune system to recognize the tumor. And then it promotes this adaptive response, right? Which is, all right, how do I train the normal process, right? How do I get those memory cells? And that involves dendritic cell activation, NK activation, B cell, antigen specific T cells. We can go through all the different cells in the adaptive immune response. And you know what? The same product also takes down the camouflage of the barrier. So it can correct what we call in a suppressive tumor microenvironment to make sure that those immune cells can get into the tissue. And you know, we recently launched a collaboration with a major academic center, Stanford University, and we're gonna see if combining like this bioengineered attack force, right? Billions of cells that we're gonna put in and we're gonna educate them to really make sure we get rid of the tumor in combination with a drug that helps promote the adaptive response, helps take away some of the camouflage, 
that combination can give you the best of both worlds, a very quick elimination of all the active tumor cells, and then this promotion of the long-term, more natural immune response inside the body. It's not something we do in the lab. This all happens inside the body in the normal kind of way that the body knows how to do this can give you the best of both worlds. And that's kind of a cool new approach that we're trying to see if we can do that. It's like how like a sports team, a lot of times, you know, things can look great if you, you know, we're kind of probably full in the South and with football, it's hot, it's humid. I'm like these, you know, people in thinner air climates and 70 degrees may think they're, they're hot, quote unquote, and then they come here. And then, you know, that's where, that's what I think that's part of the reason anyway, football is like, that's why we're, we're so tough and strong. But same thing, you can see things that look really good in one environment, but the environment in your precise environment is where it's really important. So if you can really kind of acclimate, if you bring the team in like, you know, the week or two before, before the actual battle, quote unquote, or, or, or match, like that's the best kind of circumstances and that's why I think there is a lot of attention there's a lot of excitement about engineering things and putting it in but really having that homeo you know stasis and environment of, of all the variables essentially is something that's pretty desirable and and I know that's where people are are, are uh, kind of still saying again just got to go to the original as, as good as we think we are can I add one thing to the football yeah. analogy so the way I, I describe yeah. people is a lot of companies and scientists are working on their MVP and one MVP is not going to win you a football game, right? You know, you need a team. And, and that's the thing. Like, you can make a CAR T cell, and that's your MVP, right? That one cell, and, and, and that's great. And, and that MVP may be able to make an amazing play and get you a touchdown. But it's not going right. to win you the game. It's really a team effect. And that's why I'm saying it's going to require combinations, most likely, right? It's going to require combinations. And you really want to find the key areas where you can impact all these different players, mobilize the whole team together to get the best chance of, of this long-term response that we're all trying to get. And that's well, that was my second question. Like just a whole that bunch of you... our drugs that we develop are, are multifocal. So you go, well, what's the downside of that? Well, the downside is, is it gonna be more toxic, right? And it really depends on this hierarchy of cells, right? Now, um, if you are able to impact one normal cell and have that cell impact all the other normal processes, maybe you will not get the toxicity of you just taking one thing and turning it up to 11, if you like the uh, analogy with uh, a spinal tap, right? Oh, so, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and things like that, sometimes they're turning one little thing up to like way higher than it should be. And then that's where you start getting toxicity and all that. Well, we're just trying to say, Let's make sure the normal process and the normal cascade of things that need to happen, happen in the normal way inside the body. And we just are kind of stimulating that. Facilitators of that, yeah. And that answered my question, which was, you said our product, but really what, what that means is it's, it's obviously recognizing the different pieces and parts that go into it. And I just had spoken to, you know, Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee, Pulitzer Prize winner in Maladies, and his point, you know, to build on that. I think anyone that listens to these podcasts now is saying this at the dinner table all the time. It's all about multiple ways and strategies to attack it. It's, it's, it's take away the microenvironment, the moat that protects the castle. How do you make that go away? Do you starve it? Do you just kill it? Make sure that, okay, I can go in the castle and kill them. But if I just keep the way from food to and water to get in, that's one strategy. And then, and then the attack and all of these things. But Dr. Mukherjee was saying what his focus on too is exactly what you're saying, but the sequencing too, because now it's not just a matter of 
doing all these different like pathways and doors at once, but the order in which you do them. So if you do chemo at first to just reduce the burden, he said you want to reduce the burden because if you have a billion cells versus a million, your chance of having a refractory clone is just higher. It's just simple math. It's not simple math. It's, it's logarithmic math. But but so you want to reduce that as soon as possible in the process of these other chess these chess moves that you have planned, and then you know it may be to then open the doors like you said, dissolve the the envelope or the camouflage first, and then basically make it to where it can't continue to 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 grow by, by starving it. And so he's looking at amino acid starvation basically just for the cell specifically, and then it's so much to do with basically in a very broad philosophical way of unwinding and picking apart what was so beautifully, whether celestial or divinely orchestrated assembly of, of just beautiful like coordination and, and harmony that is evolution or again, divine, whatever you believe, but all these mechanisms that allowed us over time to be where we're at and still like have some semblance of like a life up to 70 and 80, despite knowing all the errors and stuff, we're basically trying to undo all of that because the same things that made that cell survive today, like it's just now growing and, and out of our immune system. And we have to unravel those things that has been keeping us alive this whole time to basically very effectively to the last cell kill it. And that's that's something that's recent in me is is, is recognizing what a challenge and feat that is, right? And, and part of the problem is, is, you know, like I said, for many, many years as scientists, we looked at what I would call artificial models in, in animals, right? These are not cancers right. that develop over years and have put up the defenses and whatnot, you inject some cancer cells underneath the skin of a mouse and then you treat. That mouse never even had a tumor. I mean, there's no tumor there. There's right. cells that That's are true. cancerous, right? And, and so on. And, and that doesn't necessarily reflect, particularly with things that target the immune system, what's reality in humans. So Ian, what you're telling me is, you know, we need to be careful about these mice models, basically, because what you what you said at some point to me was when you inject a tumor in just under the skin that's not the circumstances and all of these other things and principles that happened to make that tumor basically have the opportunity to come alive in the human like we know that it took a whole series of things to get there and so that can be deceptive is is what you're saying right because you're really saying oh well look it's still blood and it's still a mammal and so therefore but but that's almost in gross irreverence of all the circumstantial stuff that even allowed that thing to be spawned and therefore we should probably look at settings where it you know that those things are in place yeah so it's really interesting i mean you know I've been working in this area for a long time and my colleagues and and um, it really depends on the type of drug you're testing. So our typical, you know, the typical model and, and by all means, we've cured cancer in this model over and over again. And drugs have not necessarily translated to the same benefit in humans. They inject cells underneath the skin. They don't even wait for a tumor to develop and they treat and they show that those cells go away. Now, if wow. you're focused on chemotherapy, or something that's tar targeting the tumor cell directly, maybe that's a little bit more valid. But we're talking targeting the immune system. Now the immune system, when you inject cells underneath the skin has had no time to understand it, to process it and, and whatnot. In fact, some of those cells never grow. And it's potentially because the immune system recognizes and gets rid of it and doesn't allow those cells to even form a tumor. So in any event, right. um, we really need to look for models that are better representative of what we think the human condition, particularly in this area of immune-based therapies. So, you know, we try to focus on things, for example, that we would inject cells intravenously 
and wait a sufficient time until those cells metastasize throughout the body of the mouse and then treat and then see can we get metastatic oh. mice to go away and, and, and whatnot. And, and we have models like that where, you know, where we test drugs like PD-1 in a melanoma metastatic model and we see about the exact same response rate as we saw in the clinic when we tested the drug. So we think that's a better model gotcha. where we can, you know, screen for drugs that, that could have benefit. One of the things that's pretty cool or not cool, depending on your orientation with animals, but there's a whole movement now to treat spontaneous tumors in dogs, right? Yes. So you're a pet owner, your dog developed cancer, which is a pretty common occurrence. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to try to give your dog chemotherapy? I mean, that's not a great alternative. You can enroll those dogs into clinical trials and we can try some of our drugs in, in a setting that probably is closer to the human condition, right? These are tumors that develop spontaneously and have evaded whatever the natural immune system is in a dog. Interesting, right. Um, so all of those little and, mechanisms you know, were just not to scale. Because, you know, I can't necessarily find 100 dogs with, with tumors. I have to wait for them to develop and see if they're in close proximity. And most people don't even know of that. I mean, one of my big pet peeves, and I'm going to kind of promote a little bit on here, is that in the United States, less than 5% of cancer patients who are eligible to um, participate in clinical trials actually do. And I think there's a mentality awesome. out there that um, I don't want to be a guinea pig. And I mean, I can tell you with the studies that we do, you know, we typically go in, in a couple different settings and a setting where, you know, you tried everything and there's nothing else. And we're going to give you the best available treatment that you can get. And oftentimes it's the best available treatment plus one of our new drugs. So, you know, you're not sacrificing anything to participate in clinical it's research. It's like a bonus. Yeah. It's not like saying, oh, you know, that's you're we don't helping to work at all. society right. to learn if these things um, will work. Of course, we have to get your permission. And in the permission, sometimes with new drugs, we don't know if it's going to make you better or worse. And that sometimes scares people off. But most of the times when we're talking about these type of treatments that are really well thought out and designed to attack a certain part of the immune system. We're not giving you toxic chemicals that we, you know, we isolated from a plant in, in the Amazon, right? <laughs> These are things that are rationally designed to mimic things that normally exist in your body. The risk of that kind of real bad toxicity is, 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 is pretty low. But For if sure. people were more willing to participate in clinical trials, we would have way more drugs for cancer and we'd be able to help a lot more people because it just takes so long to be able to test these things. And, and if I can have any message to anybody listening is don't be afraid, okay? Um, most time, the best care you'll get will be in a clinical trial. And you never know if you're gonna be one of those 100% that are cured, you know? And, and, and exactly. the only way to find out is to, to participate. Dr. Ian Walters, this has been such a pleasure, and you absolutely nailed it. It's just we couldn't say this even as recently as ten years ago, other than you know melanoma and immune therapy. But 
But now, the, if, if you can accept at least that there's billions of dollars going into a field in science and development, and to say that now these things are where you find them on trials and the trials that we see out there that have the data, like the Starlamab, I mean, it's an exciting time. And we, I just, I, I'm sure everyone agrees. I think we're just going to have to have you back and, and just get into now all the, you know, gut and immunity stuff and then updates on what, what y'all are finding because... It's exciting and I think it's also humbling all the things you shared about the different pathways and, and the trials and why it looks promising and then isn't and then what we're finding and learning about why why it isn't or why it works and then stops working. So it's, it's humbling. I hope it helps people appreciate kind of why it's so challenging to not find the cure, which is my pet peeve. You know, we know it's not the cure now. Like we know enough to say that it'll be maybe every, you know, most every disease process be cured with a constellation of multiple drugs and therapies. So it's challenging, but it's been an absolute pleasure. And where can people find you? Do you have social media? Can they see what you're doing? Have you published? My company does some social media. I'm still a little bit behind the curve on, on doing my own personal uh, social media, but the name of our company is Portage Biotech and you could follow us on, on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, we have a website, portagebiotech.com that talks a little bit about our programs and what we're doing. You know, look, we can't do this by ourselves, right? You know, um, I gave up the practice of medicine in order to kind of devote myself and work around the clock to see if we can prevent, you know, our friends, our family, and and everyone from having to endure this terrible disease and, and you know, treatments that are not really getting the job done, see if we can move the needle. Uh, I've been fortunate to contribute now to five new drugs coming to the market and helping a lot more patients That's than I could have ever done as a practicing doctor. Um, we have 14 drugs that we're working on right now that do all these crazy things that we didn't have time to go into. But, um, you know, we're really trying to make a difference. Hopefully, you know, we find stuff, we find the right patients that could benefit from these things. And uh, people are more willing to kind of uh, put their trust in their doctor's hands as far as trying these new treatments and we can you know accelerate the pace of of innovation that is amazing and what brought us together in part is because of x cures where basically that is the trial one of the trial databases that exists out there but a lot of my patients in that same setting either options are limited or we want something that you know a little more promising than the next option and that's where you can get queried for basically you know the drug trials that you offer and 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 all the people that are doing exactly what you're doing i want it to be collaborative as you do instead of like don't look at them look over here we all just like dude let's just do everything we can collectively to just move the needle and so and x cures is one example there's many others where where but if you don't feel like you've been adequately i guess explored or considered for trials these are you know ways that you can do it from home and then you can yeah i mean it, to try to find it, it's definitely hard and, and everybody around in my network always comes to me for help on this because it's not easy to navigate as a layperson right you know there's www.clinicaltrials.gov where we're all mandated by the government to post our trials um that's not the easiest site to, to you know, search as uh, you know a newly diagnosed person or, or a family member. I, I tip my hat to groups like Excures and other patient support groups that are really trying to help um, patients uh, be educated about their disease, about their options, and to connect them with the right doctors and treatment centers to help them manage this process.